this is as close to hell as I ever want to get. Lorraine Warren, The Amityville Horror. Welcome to the Wellhouse Exorcism. I'm not here for the history, I'm here for the ghosts. It's PJ. And I'm Sideshow Shanna. Eh. Had that planned? You said you had a new intro. Told you. Just for this week. <laughs> and a one week only. So you can redeem yourself from the Jersey Devil. No. Puckwa PJ <laughs> is in charge again. No. I don't know how you talked me into this. <laughs> I had a great two-part hey, show planned. Look, look at me. Look at, look at me. I'm looking. I'm the captain. Now. Oh, you're not. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm just a sideshow always. Well, we are here to discuss... Spoopy stuff. Well, that's why it's called the well house. You know, this is why you cannot be in charge. Who's ready to get spooked? I am, I am. That's right. So we're talking about probably one of the most famous haunted houses in the country and whether or not we think it's famous or not horror or hoax yeah going going back to our roots of judging and what we think about it because there's going to be some debate probably about oh yeah as we get into it here so what we're talking about so we are talking about the amityville horror bum 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 so uh I mean, I'm pretty sure everyone listening has heard of the Amityville Horror at this point. they don't know everything about it, Puckwap PJ. There is quite a bit I learned. Me too. Uh, I read the book. And I barely researched this. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So, yeah, I I read the Amityville Horror. Um, The whole thing? Cover to cover? Yeah. I didn't. Uh, That's good. No, you're in charge. I I want to be surprised. (laughs) And I wanted to watch the original movie. Because that's supposed to be, like, pretty accurate. But, um... Well, let's have movie night. Yeah. Make some popcorn. That's right. Relax. It's so hard to watch movies when you have three children who are all going, I want to watch this on TV. Me, 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 me. And then when they finally go to bed, you're too <laughs> exhausted to watch a movie. I know. Every parent out there understands. Yep. So anyway, you ready? Yes. All right, well... Let's do it. I want to discuss my references. I know you have some, too, like the, the book. But I, <laughs> again, I did my research... Including Wikipedia. But my quote, my references are Amityville Horror, Horror or Hoax by ABC News. Amityville, Inside the Case That Rattled a Season for Paranormal Investigator by Beth Braden. Everything You've Ever Wanted to Know About Ed and Lorraine Lauren. Warren, not Lauren, I apologize. By Oren Gray. Ghost Hunter Lorraine Warren Tells Us the One Haunted House She Won't Revisit by Adam Pockross. Pockross. That's a terrible name. Anyway, <laughs> 11 things you need to know about legendary paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren. Those are my references. So mine are all over the place. Like mine. The, yeah, the two <laughs> big ones are the novel, well, book. Some will call it a novel. We'll talk about that. Uh, the Amityville Horror, a true story. I can tell you what a novel is, what a novella is, what a short story is. That's my degree. <sighs> so then also... <laughs> Uh, something else that I watched, um, which was pretty darn insightful, and then I, like, used Google and everything to, to back up the sources, was a documentary on YouTube, and it's, like, three parts long, and each part's, like, an hour and a half. And it's called Shattered Hopes, The True Story of the Amityville Murders. 
Wowzers. Yeah. That's by, depressing. By Ryan Katzenbach. That is a last name, too. It, it could be Katzenbach. I'm not sure. I gotcha. Uh, but yeah. So, um, with that, Ryan also interviewed Ronnie DeFeo, a.k.a. Butch, as Is it DeFeo or DeFeo? DeFeo. Okay. <laughs> like Willem Defoe. Yeah. Uh, and that interview was in 2014, and he passed away in 2021. I think that was the most recent interview. I don't think he did any after that. Alrighty. So, yeah. Now, did his story change a lot? We'll find out, I guess. Oh, boy. Because <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the answer to. Well, I think before we do the Amityville thing, we got to get some background on Ed and Lorraine. You know what I'm saying? So this is why we said it might be a two-parter, because my brief background on Ed and Lorraine became three pages of notes. And my brief background became 13 pages. I know. So. It's amazing how much work we did for this, considering it was like, I kind of want to do Amityville. Fine, I'll let you in charge for once again, because <laughs> I have a book that Penny bought me, and I was going to do the entire story as, as a two-part series. It's from our local area. And we'll and do it, that later. And it involves the Pope. It's a pretty cool thing. But then I was like, okay, yeah, feel it. Do some Amityville. Why not? It's getting close to Halloween. Why not? <laughs> and then I just find Ed and Lorraine fascinating. So I was like, oh, oh yeah. I'll just do some research. All right. So I did some background on Ed and Lorraine Warren. You ready to learn some stuff about them? I'm ready. Well, Ed and Lorraine Warren both had paranormal experiences early in their lives that made them fascinated by it. Fascinating. I know. I'm done. That was it. That's all I got. No. Oh. <laughs> That's all She's wrote in really big font. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so I can fill three pages. <laughs> and it set a precedent for their future occupations. When precedent he was, of what? Uh, when he was a boy, Ed grew up in a house he believed was haunted. He mentioned that doors would open on their own, and there were also strange lights that would form in this house. Okay. Very spooky. That's creepy. Yeah. yeah. Now, Lorraine's experiences, no surprise, are more of a, like, you know, medium's nature. She recalled her first clairvoyant abilities when she was about the age of nine. She would see auras around people, but she just assumed that was normal. So these past experiences would create an utter fascination in the paranormal that would link them inextricably forever. It's a pretty good sentence, if I do say so myself. I like it. Thank you. I try. So anyway, Ed and Lorraine Warren met when they were both teenagers. They fell in love. Ed was an usher at the Colonial Theater in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and Lorraine went there pretty often. So he thought she was hot stuff. But in 1945, when he just turned 17, he enlisted in the Navy to go fight World War II. Hmm. Yep. So that's pretty cool. He's a decorated war hero. Um, it was during this jaunt in the, into the armed forces that would cause Ed to have a near-death experience, actually. The ship he was on collided with an oil tanker in the North Atlantic. A large fire erupted in the ship, and so everyone had to abandon the ship by jumping overboard. So they were all in that frigid Atlantic water, just like Titanic. Uh, it seemed like it was forever, so Ed actually prayed for help because he figured that was the end of it. Because, you know, everyone knows about Titanic and the North Atlantic. Not a good place to be. Yeah, right. Uh, but he prayed for help, and they were soon rescued out of, like, nowhere. So after that, he and his fellow shipmates were sent home for 30 days of, quote, survivor's leave. Mm -hmm. But as soon as he got back, he asked Lorraine to marry him. And that was it, like, married right away. Because he kind of realized, you know, world can end pretty quickly. So they got married, like, in a jiffy. By the next year, they had a daughter named Judy, the only child they ever had. Um, but fun fact, she was born January 11th, 1946. Everyone gets close to my birthday, but they just don't get it on the birthday. I'm a little offended. Just wait till we get to your birthday in here. Yes. 
Is it a fun fact? Oh my. <laughs> it's a fact. Okay. Well, I have a fun fact. Uh, Ed and Lorraine were both devout Roman Catholics, so just like us. Ed was eventually recognized as the only Catholic lay expert on demonology. Their faith included inherent beliefs, of course, in supernatural and demonic worlds, just like us. So it's no surprise that their faith then played a large role in their research, their investigations, and, of course, exorcisms, because they believe that priests should do exorcisms. Um, Ed's background actually was in the fine arts. He was a painter. So you seem like in the Conjure movies, like, you know, fixing cars and stuff. But he was actually a painter by trade. Yeah, because Lorraine's the painter in the movies. Which is weird, She yeah. paints a lot. Mm -hmm. No, he is, he's a beautiful no, painter. No, it is him. He paints the nun. He does? Yeah. Oof. Well, they... Yeah. See, I didn't see that So one. he is a painter. Well, no, I never saw, but in the first Conjuring, he's, like, painting. Oh, is he? And okay. he, he paints the nun. Listen, I'm just looking at him because he's hot in the movie. Anyway, I love you. <laughs> so that was actually interesting because they would use his painting as a ruse to gain access to the houses they want to investigate. So he would like go to the house and paint it and he would just sit out like, you know, be a little painter. And then once he finished Putting it, happy little trees all over the place. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> and then he'd give the painting to Lorraine. Then Lorraine will go up to the front steps, you know, cause she's cuter than he is. And she'd knock on the door and she'd talk to the people in the house and she'd say, look, my, you know, my husband painted this. He's wondering if he wanted it. And that would kind of get her foot in the door. So she'd go in the house and uh, they would talk for a little while and she would find out about, you know, the property and then, of course, any possible hauntings. And from there, they, they would investigate. So that's actually how their um, career began was, huh. yeah, by him using his painting as a roost to get into houses. <laughs> so I'm not sure how I feel about that. But anyway, so that was in 1946 and on. By 1952, they actually created the New, New England Society for Psychic Research, or everyone just calls it NESPER. Nesper. So according to the website, Nesper uses a variety of individuals, including medical doctors, researchers, police officers, nurses, college students, and members of the clergy for investigation. So they're very thorough. Mm -hmm. Because um, the one thing that they show a little bit in the movies, but I, again, I appreciate is the Warrens always try to debunk hauntings before they would just claim they were haunted. Yeah. So they would walk through the house. They'd find like pipes and try to like say, well, if this is rattling here, it's going to make this noise over here. So mm -hmm. it's going to sound like a haunting or like, you know, whatever, but it's not. So they would really like look for like normal issues and logical problems, uh, to yeah. debunk before they would decide it was haunted. Yeah, you see that in the second movie too, mm -hmm. where there's like, all right, we're out, you know, like you guys faking it. We're gone. See ya. Yep. Um, but yeah, Ed would personally look over the entire house and he would rule everything out. So shout out for that. Um, but they, you know, there's questionability of like them like lying about hauntings too. So, yeah. But anyway, um, according to different um, sources, they actually investigated over 10,000 cases of hauntings, demonic possessions, and like haunted objects. 10,000. It's nuts. I feel kind of lazy. And Warner Brothers owns all those rights. <laughs> I know. Um, but, of course, as they became more well-known, critics, of course, started to raise the flag about their fake abilities. And because, mm -hmm. you know, they actually, there's like a, there's a society up north that's like the skeptic society <laughs> to make fun of Nesper, <laughs> I feel, when I was doing my research. But Lorraine was so incredibly disturbed. They were like saying she was fake. That she actually, like, underwent scientific testing to prove that she had clairvoyant abilities. So that, like, to me... That's gutsy. Yeah, right. So that's something I learned in my research. So a team of scientists at UCLA actually examined her and put her through a series of tests. At the end of it, like, it was an extensive study. They did, in fact, determine that she um, was, quote, a light trance medium. So she wasn't faking her medium abilities. 
according to science. I mean, I do believe that some people are blessed and mm-hmm. have talents. So, but then you see way too often on TV people who, you know, misuse or, uh, yeah, misuse it or um fake just it. fake it completely. Sylvia Brown, uh, or you know, you um, Miss Cleo. Miss Cleo. Oh my <laughs> gosh, I forgot back. about that. <laughs> but like, you see like 28 Days Haunted and I'm like, okay, are they real? Because <laughs> again, I was gripped to that. And of course it's, that connects to the war. It's entertaining, that's for sure. I, I want to believe it's real though, because it was just so good. But when you're look, standing over the wrong gravestone. I want to go back and watch that. Talking to a dead girl. I don't know if I believe your, your video. All right. <laughs> We saw it. We saw the video. But that was man, that could have been the the tombstone next to. Alex. All right, for our listeners, there is a video that just makes fun of Twenty Eight Days Haunted, and there's one clip where they're looking for the gravesite of a girl named Adelaide, and they find the gravesite, and they kneel over the tombstone, and it clearly says mercy on the tombs in loving memory of mercy maybe her name was mercy adelaide and she went by adelaide Jeez, no i know uh, it was a really and really good anyway so back to the, the warrens here because lorraine i love her so anyway thanks to the media we know many of the warrens most notable cases and that's when i want to like just give a little background on each of them in case we ever want to do more war of these stuff. yes so the first one of note was actually Annabelle. That was 1968. I kind of did a timeline here to put in context because the movies are out of order. Oh, yeah. So in 1968, uh, so 16 years after they had created Nesper, the Warrens investigated the story of two roommates who believed their Raggedy Ann doll was possessed. And that's when the movie gets wrong. It was a Raggedy Ann doll. It makes me so angry when you see that like, creepy doll. Well, I, get, I get that it adds an ambience, but Raggedy Ann dolls are creepy anyway. So anyway. Uh, the Warrens ended up taking the doll and putting it behind glass in their occult museum. The next notable case was that of the parent family that was 1971, and that was the first movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so they found themselves at the Rhode Island home of the parents. They claimed the house was haunted by a witch by the name of Bathsheba Sherman. Uh, this became the first Conjure movie, as mentioned, of which Lorraine actually was a consultant, and she had a cameo in the movie. But if you watch the credits, that they actually say that she was a consultant in the movie. Huh. Yep. The next major case was Amityville, which we're discussing tonight. So I'm going to mm-hmm. skip over that. After that, the Enfield Poltergeist took which place. Which was Conjuring 2. Yep. 1977. The family in nor- this North London suburb called Enfield claimed that they were haunted by a poltergeist. I was like saying it that way because the way it's spelled, it's poltergeist. Anyway, I have to say it that way when I'm typing it or else I'll spell it wrong. Uh, so. yes. Poltergeist. Uh, anyway, most people believe that these were just children looking for attention and they couldn't get their story straight. And they were they freaking it. But anyway, uh, it is interesting to note for this that while the Warrens claimed to be a major part of it and they were trying to save the children, most others stated that um, they showed up at the house, but they weren't even allowed entrance into the house. So they had no part in the Enfield poltergeist huh. event at all. Yeah. So that kind of makes me want to, I don't know, because like the Warrens are notably recognized as people who go in and claim fake things are real. Yeah. But then to not let in the biggest paranormal researchers in the world also kind of makes you think that they're trying to cover something up. <laughs> and if you look at pictures of the children, quote, levitating, it's that they're jumping. They're jumping on they're, bed. They're jumping on their beds. Yeah, I agree. <sighs> anyway, so following this was the famous story of Arne Johnson. 
which of course was also a oh, the third movie. one. Yep. This is the 1981 story of when he killed his landlord, um, and he believed he was possessed by the demon who had previously possessed his fiance's younger brother, which is a lot to put in a sentence, but it's true. Um, but For crime junkies, it's the famous "the devil made me do it" case. I, that was my next sentence. I stole it. This became the now famous Conjuring movie, "The Devil Made Me Do It." My gosh, am I psychic? <laughs> no, but I... Lorraine Warren was. <laughs> anyway. I'm feeling something. <laughs> I think it's frustration. Maybe some annoyance. It's coming from in front of me. <laughs> anyway, it also became famous because um, he pleaded not guilty by reason of demonic possession. He did not win. Obviously, he was sentenced and because he's found guilty. But he tried. And tried. Now, in 1986... Was he sentenced for a period of time? Ed and Lorraine found themselves at the Snedeker house. Which, if you're from Pennsylvania, I think of Joe Snedeker from Newswatch 16. I wonder if they're related. But anyway, <laughs> 1986, we weren't even born yet. It was a former funeral home, and they proclaimed that... Well, Ed and Lorraine uh, proclaimed that it was infested with demons... Now, the entire story of the Seneca house seems to be a hoax, as no one in the family could actually keep their story straight. And so when you read up on that um, with the multiple sources, they said the family was heavily involved in drugs and alcohol. So nothing was provable. Um, the stories kept changing. So they're, you know, they're not saying there weren't demons, but they're mm -hmm. like, there ain't demons. But anyway, that then leads us to rural PA the same year. And that was the home of Jack and Janet Smurl. I love the name. It's close to I've Smurf. I've definitely heard of this. Yeah, well, well, it's from our area, yeah. So the family believed the house was suffering from general haunting problems because they mentioned, like, some sounds were happening and smells, seeing apparitions, that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. And Lorraine uh, claimed that it was much worse than that. They said the house was home to four spirits and also a demon. Oh, boy. Yes, they believed the demon had even sexually assaulted Jack and Janet. I would like to ask how jack and janet didn't know that but anyway while the smurl house the warrens actually had to call in the big guns though so to miss the me this kind of like proves maybe it was real because they actually had to have a ritual of exorcism um done on the house which is what happened mm -hmm. to our house so uh but here's a fun side note the cardinal they called was cardinal ratzinger and he would become future uh, future pope benedict the 16th huh. right so that's kind of cool um, so that's the, the final, like, major case that they had. Mm -hmm. Now, they had a whole bunch, again, they had 10,000 plus cases, but those are the, the most... noteworthy yeah, ones. Yeah, the most notable ones. So that is the introduction that I have for you at the, uh, the Warrens. Any comments? I mean... I did learn something. They, they come with baggage. Whenever their name is dropped, you know, it's always, like, a groan... And like, okay, here we go again. It's the Warrens. Yeah, we've done it in this show. <laughs> many it's not times. as bad as Zach Bergen's though. Like, <laughs> uh. but what's kind of cool is um, they've been like on a lot of different TV shows before they passed away. They were like on a whole bunch of things. Now, of course, she was helpful in making the Conjuring movies too. Mm -hmm. So, that was kind of cool. Just like as a side note. Yeah. So, so now it's your turn. Okay. I want to learn about Amityville. So, to talk about Amityville, we have to talk about some mob stuff. All right. Which I had no idea was involved with the Amityville house. That blew me away. Are the Masons involved? Not that I could find. Okay. Well, that's one thing. Yeah. 
I learned something ironic about the house. Can I share it? Okay. While we call it Amityville, the house is actually called High Hopes. High Hopes, yeah. <laughs> Just the irony. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, it starts with the DeFeo family. Okay, well, that sounds mobby already. <laughs> so uh, the DeFeo family, uh, they worked, uh, the grandfather of the DeFeos uh, got a job working at a Buick dealership that was his wife's father's or something like that. It uh, is his wife's family's. And he became service manager there. And then it just kind of became the DeFeo Buick dealership. All right. And with that... Were the cars a front for mob boss stuff? Probably. All right. Uh, I didn't, like, you know, I didn't dig too much into the mob stuff. Buick cars, but... I didn't dig too much into it, but it does play into it, so I definitely have to talk about it. Okay. Once he got his new job as service manager of the place, they bought this ginormous house on Ocean Avenue, and it was called, and and they named it High Hopes. I know, right? That song just sounds a whole lot different (laughs) after this. Uh, So the address was 112 Ocean Avenue. But they have since changed it to 108 at Ocean Avenue to deter tourists. Because changing the number by four. It's like changing Salem like to Peabody. It's fine. Salem never had we never hanged witches. Oh, and the best part is like it's blurred out on Google Earth. And there are all these articles that say like they've changed the face um the facade of the house so much you can't even tell what it looks like anymore. And just two years ago or so, the, there was like a tour of the house. Like the owners let people in and take pictures. Looks the same. <laughs> like, I didn't see much of a difference. I mean, if I drove by, I'd be like, oh, there it is. I found it. <laughs> D- I didn't look unrecognizable to me. But that being said, uh, Ronnie DeFeo Jr., the son of the family involved here. Is uh, it called RJ? Like PJ? RJ? No. They called, him, they called him Butch, actually. They No one called him Why? Ronnie. No oh, one well, ever called Butch him. Butch is a very mafia kind of name. So. Yeah, yeah. So, uh... He starts talking about the family and everything, and he says that they worked for the famous Genovese crime family. Oh, okay. One of the five families that ran the mafia of New York. So it's like, that's all opposite coast. No. Isn't Amityville in New California? York. No, Long Island. What? Uh-huh. I'm so confused. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because Long Island's actually an island. Because l- later I have a quote from Lorraine, and she's like, it followed us across the United States or whatever, and I was, or across the ocean or across the water. I forget. Anyway, continue. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So the the you know the famous five families. Wait, Card song is about Long Island. No, they're talking is about, about California. It's that or Florida because they're from Florida. Oh, okay. Yeah. I guess there's a lot of ocean avenues. Continue yeah. your story about mob bosses and the Genovese. Yes. Go ahead. So the Genoveses are the oldest of the five families I learned as well. Ooh. Yeah. So pretty powerful people. Ronnie Jr. was a... A.K.A. Butch. A.K.A. Butch. Uh, I'm going to call him Ronnie from here Makes on out. Makes sense, yeah. Uh, there's Ronald, his dad, and then there's Ronnie. And uh, Ronnie was a, a runner, an errand boy for them. Uh, with this, he got... He never did pot or anything like that, but he did get hooked on meth. Wow, cool. Okay. That was his gateway drug. And from there, he did heroin, too. Meth was too. his gateway. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Aye. Yeah. 
And I, I wish I still had the quote. I typed it out, but then I got rid of it. But he's like, yeah, I never smoked pot. I just did meth. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> That's so much better. Uh, but yeah, he spent, um, up at the point of the interview, which was 2014, June 2nd, uh, at that point he had spent 39 and a half years in prison. He was denied parole eight times. And, uh, he ended up dying at the age 69, March 12th, 2020. I put that down actually in my notes, say 69 is an evil number, look at that, I just want to say... <laughs> One of the big things is that the DeFeo Buick dealership, they had um, someone who worked for them called Anthony Mazzeo. Mazzeo, okay. Now, Anthony Mazzeo is a mob hitman. You wanted someone to disappear, you called Anthony. Do we call him Tony? <laughs> Tony. So, um, yeah, he worked with the family. Uh, Ronnie's great uncle, especially Pete DeFeo, he was a capo in the Genovese family. So he was a captain oh, great. in the family there. He was high up. And uh, he often had to, like, run into precincts to pay off dirty cops. So he knew a lot of them by name. And he found out that at some point, he never said why, but Ronnie found out there was a hit on him. Oh. Yeah. Oh, my. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> da, 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 da. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Surprise. And uh, he knows that, like, Anthony Mazzeo was probably going to be the one to do it. So he had to go into hiding, which was just parking his car in the garage and staying in his house for three days. (laughs) But no one could find him. (laughs) So good at hiding. Uh, (laughs) The worst mob ever. Now, I have to preface this by saying this interview bounced all over the place. So it was very hard to, like, make heads or tails of what the heck this guy was saying half the time. So then he he's talking about how Anthony Mazzeo, he was a friend of the family for up until four years prior. Okay. Then no contact. They stopped talking with him. Like, he, he used to talk with the uh, DeFeos all the time. Mm-hmm. But then he told Ronald that Ronnie was a troublemaker and that Ronnie was no we good. We can't kill him because he hides too well. Yes. <laughs> that Ronnie was no good and all that. And Ronald's like, I don't want to hear this crap about my kid. We're never talking to you again. Like, get out of my face. And so Anthony is out of the picture. No longer family friend. Goodbye, Tony. And for four years, they never heard from him. Ronnie believes that the hit was placed on him because he was telling his family that Anthony was stealing parts from the car dealership. From the Buicks. Yeah. And And he said, I swear to you, he has enough parts by now to just build his own car. He's like, I swear it up and down. Like, you need to search his property because he has it. And so Ronnie was convinced there's a hit out on him because he he did this to Anthony and all that. All that went down. The big thing is that Ronald was an abusive, abusive father. He was terrible to his children and to the wife uh, to one point where his sister chased him around the dining room with a knife. That's fine. Yeah. And Ronnie's just like, oh, he let her chase him around. He would have just taken the knife from her. <laughs> and it's like, oh my gosh, okay. Everything's fine. <laughs> yeah, so with this, he decides that he's going to, like, talk to his sister about it and say, like, hey, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Like, what do we do? And she we wanted to can't out. have someone chasing us with knives, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just it's not good for the family. Yep. She wanted to get out in the worst way. And especially to go to Florida. Ronald thought it was because she was going to, like, stay with some boy. She's like, no, I just want to get out of this house. 
I so, want to go to a different Ocean Avenue. That's going to be a song later. That's right. <laughs> so Ronnie talks to her about and teaches her how to shoot his lever action rifle. Okay. In the basement. <laughs> so, and it doesn't raise eyebrows. No, it's for, fine. You know, or reduce anyone's hearing. So, you know, but he that's what he says in his interview. That he, Can we trust him? <laughs> he's a credible source, right? Because, like, if we were shooting a gun down here in the basement, it would sound loud. Yeah. Just loud. Even if you do it outside, it hurts. If you don't have protection on, shooting a gun without protection, yikes, it hurts. Yeah. I've done it. We all have. It's, yeah, not fun. Well, not all of us, but all of us at this table. Just two of us. Just two of us. Anyway. <laughs> Is it? Wait, I'm feeling something. No, you're not feeling something other than me being annoyed. We, we had the house exercise. It's fine. Anyway, continue. So, um, now that we're shooting guns in the basement, everything's fine. Mm-hmm. So he decides that, uh, you know, like they're going to, you know, he's going to help her just get out of the house. And he tells her to, like, go out, smoke some pot, calm down. Don't do meth. <laughs> I tried that. It's a bad idea. And um, it's a gateway drug. And the day of, she runs upstairs and grabs a thirty-eight rifle, oh loads my. it with all seven rounds, and she comes downstairs to Ronnie and says she's going to kill him while he slept. Cheapers. Ronnie said he's like, I never killed no one before, so go for it. <laughs> and so they start drinking to like kind of get you know get the edge off. And he takes the lever action rifle from her and he mm-hmm. cocks it and a round pops out. And he's like, oh my god, this is loaded. Okay. So he puts the round back in so it's fully loaded again. And he's like, okay, I'm ready. He didn't realize that she had a gun also. They're in the mob. Why wouldn't they have a bajillion guns? <laughs> anyway. Just wait for that. So that night they go upstairs and they start in uh, the master bedroom. Okay. He is... Well, I'll get to that later. Hold on. No, I'm not going to say that part yet. So... So they go upstairs and the both parents are sleeping on their stomachs. Ronnie claims that he begins to yell obscenities at his father and start calling him terrible things and all, you know, he's good for nothing, blah, blah, blah. And his dad... sleeping. His dad starts to get up and boom, he shoots him. Okay. And then, like, as he's falling back onto the I bed... we were just asleep the whole time, but... Okay. Yeah. And then as he's falling back onto the bed, boom, he shoots him again. And the mom is sleeping the whole time while he's yelling at his dad? At this point, his mom sits up and says, Ronnie, which s- surprises him because no one calls him Ronnie. Everyone calls him Butch. And then all of a sudden he hears, boom. And he's like, did I just pull the trigger again? And he turns and there's a sister holding a gun that he didn't know she had. And he's like, Oh, like I didn't, hmm. I didn't know the plan was to kill her too, <laughs> and uh, and then uh, he said like before he knew it they're just like taken over by something and they just go room to room and take everyone out. See, I'm already learning stuff because I thought it was just him by himself killing everybody. I didn't realize there was someone else involved. So that's only from the most recent interview. Okay. There's one version where she did the whole thing, like it was all her, and then she killed herself in the end. 
there's one version where she did the whole thing and he is angry at her for killing everyone and not just the dad so he shoots her in the head because she's the only one that had like a head wound Mm -hmm. um and then there then there's a version where he did it all and that's the one that most people believe that's the most plausible of the of all of the uh scenarios the the odd thing is that all of them were found on their stomachs yeah no sign of struggle the neighbors never heard a thing it wasn't storming that night so there's no chance of drowning out the noise with thunder yep and the 2005 dvd i remember this from when i watched it back in 2005 and it never left my brain but i was never able to i i researched like crap to find it i can't find anything to validate it that there is at this time there were no silencers available for this type of gun Hmm. and even so people who know anything about silencers know that it doesn't, doesn't matter. No, it makes a coughing sound still. No, it's not even a coughing sound. It still sm- sounds like a gun. It just makes a big gun sound like a small gun. <laughs> you know, yeah. it still sounds like a jackhammer. It just sounds like less of a jackhammer. But what if you use potato instead? <laughs> <laughs> so, like, that's one thing about movies. is like, if you shoot off a gun, everyone, even with a suppressor, which is the technical term for it, yeah, everyone, everyone the in the house is going to wake up from it. Yeah. Uh, because it's that loud. So, after he gets caught, he sends in a buddy of his, Barry Springer, to collect... Not Tony. <laughs> to collect <laughs> his money and guns. Because he was planning to kill a lot more people. There was a crawl space in one of the walls. In between his room and the bathroom. And in there, he had... An M1 carbine with a 30-shot banana clip with hundreds of rounds. And he's uh, going to shoot bananas? Badoom ching Ha! See, I'm you. I like it. You're welcome. A 44 Ruger rifle, a Remington BDL 30-06, a 12-gauge shotgun, a 280 Remington, uh, and then he was like, oh, no, wait, I gave the two, 280 to my uncle. I had a 270 Remington. Uh, a Remington shotgun with a 20-inch barrel and a pistol grip. One handgun, and that was a thirty-eight Ruger, or a Bulldog, he doesn't remember exactly. <laughs> and brand new syringes. Well, thank goodness. Because he was high on mer- on heroin for this. And to to use his quote, he had he he knew he had to quote give them an act and a performance that I could have got the Academy Award for. Me running in the bar and all that. I made all that up. So by running in the bar and all that, he meant that around 6.30 p.m. that night, he runs into Henry's bar in Amityville, and he yells, you gotta help me, my mother and father have been shot. And he's like acting crazy and everything and uh, and, and all that. And that's kind of kicked off everything. Uh, so he was like blasted on heroin. From so he hit... He hit some heroin after he killed his family? I think maybe before. He never really specifies when, but that night, like, he knew, to quote him, he had to give one heck of a performance. So he made sure he was high as a kite when he did it. Now, in this time period, could they have tested for drugs in the family? Like, could he have doped them? Probably. Because that would make sense as to why they were sleeping, and he could have rolled them on Mm -hmm. their stomachs so he didn't look at their faces that killed them. Yeah. One of the things that they looked for, or that they found um, in a garbage bag two, or in a garbage can two blocks down 
was a rag. And there's no explanation of why they took a picture of this rag. And some people think it's a pillowcase because he said he carried the weapons in a pillowcase. But I was like, well, what if the rag was soaked in something? Say like chloroform, yeah. Yeah. But in the paranormal world, it's because something was keeping them asleep for him to do this. Okay. 13 months later. 13? There is an exclusive Amityville area listing. Wait, hold up. So he kills his family. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to Ronnie for a second. Okay. Before we go into the next part. Okay. And was there shoddy investigative work here? Did he like just immediately like charge guilty and put into prison? Yeah. Um. He he ended up fessing to it. He pled guilty to it all. Uh. By insanity. Mostly. Because wasn't there... Because he, <laughs> he was say... saying uh, there were voices yeah. inside, and he felt like there was someone pulling like him different directions and yeah. you know making him go through the motions. Okay. So he kills his entire family. Mm-hmm. Does he show any remorse during any of his interviews later? Not that I could see. Now, no. how many siblings did he have? He had two Enough. siblings. I want to say it was two. And then, because he shot his mom and dad, mm-hmm. shot his sister in the head, and then weren't there... Yeah, like, he had a sister and an older brother. <clears throat> do you think he could have told them, like, you know, roll on your stomach, and then he shot them? Possible. But there was, like, from what I could see, like, all their faces were calm, too. Like, there wasn't any sign of, like, you know, agony or screaming or anything. Like, yeah. they were... Okay, I was just wondering, because... They're resting faces. It, I know, know yeah. Because th- that's like, that's still the one part that really confounds everyone is how did this happen? Yeah. Another question, now here's a big part, is were there accomplices? Because the very night that the bodies were found, there is a phone call to the property from Anthony Mazeo. See, Tony shows up again. After four years of never talking to the family, he calls on that night. And as soon as he realizes he's talking to a cop, he hangs up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, look at my wrist. Time to go. Whoops. (laughs) My bad. All right. So, okay. It's good background. Uh Uh-huh. Now let's move on. So how's this for a house? Six bedroom, Dutch colonial, spacious living room, formal dining room, a closed porch, three and a half baths, finished basement, two car garage, Heated swimming pool and a large boathouse. $80,000. Yeah, and it comes with the furniture, too. Yeah. I did my, I did some research. <laughs> yeah, $80,000. We paid more for our house. We only have one bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, yeah, it's a steal. Especially on Long Island. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, the Lutz family, when they see this, they say the same thing. What a steal. This is amazing. So they get, you know, they go in, they tour the house and everything. It looks fantastic. So, you know, they they sign, they sign the papers. And now, mm-hmm. I, I did some research because I was like, how the heck are you going to buy a house that's like where murders happened? But they were told that murders happened there. And they mm-hmm. sat their kids down and they said, just so you know, people died here. But they were all cool with it. They're like, let's find the house is awesome. So let's mm-hmm. go for it. So, like, they knew going in that this place was haunted. Yeah, I, I'll actually get to that in just a second, too. Yeah. Oh, sorry, not, 
they not that it was haunted. They knew that it had murders happen. They didn't think it was haunted. Yeah, they they knew why it was cheap. Yeah, they knew. Uh, so the Lutzes, who they wed the summer of the same year, they sign the papers. They couldn't wait to move in. They get to the house. The U-Haul's there, and they realize the key is missing. The broker had taken it with her at the signing. <laughs> so they had to call and get her to show up. Not a good sign for your first day in the property. Those accidents happen, all right? <laughs> so December 18th is the day we're talking about here. They move into the house. When the door was open, the children led the way, toys in hand. Aww. Followed by Kathy, the mother, directing everyone which way to go and where to put all the boxes. So this started about one o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, after about half hour of intense moving of the family and five of George's friends, Father Ralph Pecoraro. 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 Uh, I'm going to butcher that the whole episode. Uh, the book calls him Mancuso. They changed his name. Oh, for, oh well, okay, whatever. Yeah. Uh, he arrives to bless the house. Mm -hmm. So in addition to being a priest... I saw this in in the documentary, and I couldn't find it when I was rewatching it because like it flashes on the screen briefly. He was a counselor, and he was also something else. I'm pretty sure it says psychologist. I couldn't find it anywhere else online, but it was in this documentary. He knew the Lutz family two years uh, at this point. Um, Kathy was a Catholic, mm -hmm. and so the kids were two from a previous marriage. And on the same day, Pecorero. I got you, Pecorero. Pecorero. Just call, call him Father Ray. Father P. Or Father Ray. It's Ralph, though. Isn't it? No. Pretty sure it's Ralph. Father Ray Pecorero. I did my research, too. Okay, so the the book um, changed his first call name, too. Ralph, yeah. I'll probably be calling it's him so Ralph. so close. This is like Skinwalker Ranch all know, over like, again. Well, don't change the names. Like We're uh. going to find out who they are anyway. <laughs> He also had a lunch date with friends in the Amityville area. So he's like, okay, I'll have lunch with you guys, and then I'll go to bless the house. And, you know, after that, two birds, one stone. So he's there with the friends at lunch. And they're like, so where are you going after this? You know, like, what, what's what's the hurry? And he goes, oh, well, I have a house blessing in Amityville. And they go, well, where in Amityville? He goes, 112 Ocean Avenue. And they go, the DeFeo house? <laughs> Every time. Every time. <laughs> And so, like, the DeFeo house. And he goes, no, these are the Lutzes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, yeah, but don't you remember the murders last year? He goes, no. Like, I, don't, I don't watch the news and I don't pick up the newspaper unless <laughs> oh, no. there's, like, something specific I'm looking at here. And so they tell him about everything that's going there. And they're like, you really shouldn't go. Like, the, that place uh, is bad news. It's and got some bad juju. He's like, I already promised them I'm gonna go, so I, I gotta go. And if you believe in Jesus, it's supposed to protect you, remember? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So he pulls in to see this gorgeous house. And if, again, you've probably seen the Amityville ha yeah. house, listeners, but if you haven't, the side portrait of this house has this curved roof, almost like a, a hood. And these two windows underneath that look like eyes peering out from under the hood, which has this like, yeah, creepy, creepy look. And then there's a balcony under that. And but from the front, you see like this. It's wide, this really wide house. And it there is. Are, it's an interestingly shaped. house. Yeah, it's gorgeous. though. love this house. I really do. And uh, so he 
walks, he pulls up in the driveway and he's like, how the heck can they afford <laughs> a place like this? And he enters and flicks some well, holy one water. word, father. Murder. <laughs> <laughs> so he walks in, flicks some holy water instantly, you know, as a priest of do. Of course, yep. And he is immediately greeted by a masculine voice saying, get out, from behind him. He whirls around to discover that he's alone in the room. So he finishes the blessing <laughs> and starts to leave for dinner. The Lutzes ask him if he can stay, and he's like, no, sorry, I have my mother. She has dinner waiting for me nearby in a town called Nassau. And he's like, so I'll, I'll be leaving. Nassau. I got okay. you. And he's like, he's like, I'll be on my way. Thanks. <laughs> bye. So on his way out, he asked them if they were aware of whose house this was. And they said, well, yeah, that's why it's so cheap. And he's like, okay. <laughs> so uh, Good luck. he goes, has dinner with his mom, and he leaves her house around eight o'clock in the evening. He's not feeling well after like all day long, even prior to this, he wasn't, he just had this bad feeling like something bad was about to happen and everything. Yeah. yeah. And this anxiety. Maybe he's a bit of a clairvoyant himself. Ooh. <laughs> Are you feeling anything right now? So <laughs> I'm feeling interest, intrigue, <laughs> fascination. So as after he leaves the house, he's like, okay, the worst is over. Like, you know, but he still feels this way. So then he notices that his car is getting pushed off the road by like this invisible force. You know, it's just kind of slowly going Ooh. off the side of the road here. And then the hood pops open while driving flings back hits the windshield and one of the hinges rips off so it's just kind of like flapping around on one hinge uh as he tries to like break the car to you know because he's freaking out he's you know he wants to stop it stalls out anyways so <laughs> he's stranded now in this broken car that stalled out on him awesome. yeah oh gee this, this is so great um meanwhile back at the farm as I say, it's not a farm. At four o'clock in the afternoon, so going backwards in time a little bit here, about three hours after they start unloading, the Lutzes finish. The last thing George decides to do is something for himself. He hooks up a stereo. He just starts to do it when the dog Harry starts howling outside, but it's not like a regular dog howl. Something's wrong. He's in pain. Yeah. So he runs outside to find the dog had leapt over the fence... And is now being strangled by his own leash. Mm-hmm. Poor puppers. Yeah. He's a Malamute mix, by the way. He's a good dogger. <laughs> uh, Harry is. He's a, he's a great dog throughout this whole thing. Such a twoopa. <laughs> so, December 19th, day two. Are we still discussing father? Or we don't father? I mean, I'll come back to him here and there, but... Do you have any more stories about him? Yes. Do you want to say something? You can say something. Well, I do. Because <laughs> during the initial blessing, before he heard the masculine voice, he actually was slapped by an unseen force in the sewing room. That's later. <sighs> he came back. And it's not in the sewing room. My ha research said the sewing room. That's from the movie. Well, then my research is wrong. <laughs> this person did shoddy research work and That's I right. picked it up. All right. Well, you continue, sir. Mm -hmm. I'll just sit here and smile. <laughs> Let's go back to Harry, who's a good dog. Because he did not die from the strangulation, right? He survives the whole That's way right. through. See, he doesn't die. We want to just say, 
no dogs <laughs> died <laughs> in the making of this podcast. <laughs> so, December 19th, 3.15 in the morning. They haven't even been there 24 it's always hours. Three, I, I found that too. Like It kept being 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, 3.15 repeatedly. Yep. There's a knock on the door. Hello? I'd like to talk to you about your car's extended warranty. No! Get out of here! <laughs> so George and Kathy ask, who the heck could that be? And then, before they can go downstairs to find out, there's a loud rapping, but not from downstairs. It's to the their left. And they, they turn, and there's nothing, and it stops. Boogie, boogie, boogie. The next morning, he begins complaining about the cold. George, the father, mm-hmm. does. And this is a prevalent thing. He yeah. just cannot get warm. Uh, and he starts to get irritable. Extremely irritable. And again, this is day one. They haven't even been there a full day. This is morning of day one. And the kids run through the kitchen with the dog and out into the yard. Harry, no! And he, kids. and he just looks at Kathy and he goes, what's the matter with those two? Can't you tell them to be quiet? And she goes, you're the dad too. <laughs> And so he slams the table and goes, right! And he walks, storms up to the kitchen door, flings it open and goes, hey! Knock it off! And he slams the door and then storms out of the kitchen into the living room. And Kathy's just standing there like, what the heck just happened? Merry Christmas to you, buddy! (laughs) Yeah, but she had never, ever seen him like that before. And it was just baffling to her. Well, children can be annoying, especially near the holidays. Yeah. I mean, I know. That's some good joke. Well, yeah, one of the only other things that uh, George did that day was complain that they wasted $50 because they kept the U-Haul overnight. So, so it was an extra $50 for you to keep the U-Haul, so he, he complained about that quite a bit that first day. You know what I understand. So he took that back pretty promptly. They came back and just did not do anything for the rest of the day. He was like a compulsive shaver and showerer uh, and things like that, and he didn't do anything. Something was sucking his life force away. And again, less than 24 hours they've been there. All he did was complain about the cold and the kids being noisy. By the end of the day, Kathy was exhausted of trying to keep the kids away from him and trying to keep him happy and and trying to keep him warm. The thermostat read 75, but he was freezing and just throwing logs on the fire. He kept obsessing over things and would go downstairs and check the furnace and then come back up. And an hour later, he'd go back down and check the furnace again because he was still cold. And then he's like, is the is the boathouse locked? And they go out. Like, walk all the way out across the yard to the boathouse to check the lock, come back, and then an hour later, do the same thing to that. And so this obsessiveness started to started to form. And uh, so the third night, again, he's woken at 3.15 in the morning. And uh, Kathy, at this point, is beginning to feel it now. And uh, so that morning, they or the next day after being woken again at 3.15, she and George, she hates to admit, end up beating the kids because they broke a window pane. And with her mental exhaustion of everything and George just not being himself and all kinds of other things, like, they end up doing that. So December 22nd now, the day after the beating, Kathy feeling horrible, 
horrible about the night before and thinking about buying presents and trying to unpack everything that they haven't unpacked yet and a nor'easter is coming and george is still complaining about the cold and everything she's just exhausted like just sitting at the or standing leaning over the kitchen counter like trying to figure out what to do and just how to rebuild everything that happened in the past couple you know the past couple days and it's at this point that she feels a hug from behind oh and it's a very comforting like feminine touch and she like she doesn't uh push it away like she welcomes it like it feels nice and then at that point she hears the kids yelling from upstairs and she bolts up spell is gone about mm-hmm. whatever you know like whatever was keeping her there and like you know that she you know she completely forgot about what the heck was she was experiencing in the kitchen and she bolts up the stairs to find that the toilet bowl is black Ew. And the, she, like, flushes, nothing. Nothing happens. Like, it's still black. She scrubs at it, nothing. She Then she tells Danny, she's like, Danny. He's like, I didn't do anything! <laughs> and she's like, no, I'm sorry. Like, last night, I'm sorry. Like, you didn't do this. I get it. I know that. I need you to get the Clorox from my bathroom, okay? And he's like, okay. And, like, obvious relief that yeah, he's not getting yeah. yelled at. We're gonna get beat again. So he goes and gets that. And then you hear a scream from in there. And he's like, Mom, it's in here too! So she goes in there, and now she smells first perfume. Mm. Like, strong perfume. And then it's followed by this rancid, putrid Mm -hmm. smell. And she sees that the same black thing is in the toilet bowl there. So she calls for George. And George comes up, and he's like, what's going on? And he sees it, and he's like, what is this? And they're like, (laughs) we don't know, we can't get rid of it. And this is another common thing that keeps popping up. A, the smell, and B, yeah. this black crap that shows up. Pun not intended. Yeah, um, I know. And, uh... Because he said the odors in the house would come and go. Like, it was just mm-hmm. here, there, and it would be nice or be awful. Yeah. So that night, the next morning, if you will, they wake up 315. at 3.15 to find that their solid wood oak front door, like, they say it's hundreds of pounds, like a heavy oaken door was blown off its hinges. Well, one hinge. Yeah. And flung open. The brass doorknob was twisted and the metal around it was bent like a pry bar was taken to it. Wowzers. But from the inside, like something was trying to get out. <laughs> These people are using Clorox on the black goo. I gotta get out. <laughs> Run. So again, this sound was so loud. This bang, like imagine, this would be pretty loud. That they bolted upright. They went upstairs to find their kids all fast asleep on their stomachs, a position that, Ooh. yeah, position that they never had slept on before. But listen, okay, in deference to children, they sleep through everything. <laughs> yes, there was a fire outside our house with like it was a, what, it was a five alarm fire. Every single fire company was there, uh-huh. the and they sat through the whole time. Yeah, we had thing. six different fire companies outside <laughs> so, our house. <laughs> That being said. From one in the morning to eight in the morning, yeah. and they had no clue. No, mom, why does no the house like smoke? Well, here's the thing, sweetie. While <laughs> what you were happened sleeping, to the building across the street? <laughs> Have you looked outside lately? Yeah, there's a reason why the term <laughs> slept like a baby exists. Is it real? Yeah. Oh, man. But them being on their stomachs, which they had never done before, I is yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. But kids flop, so. 
So Christmas Day is when things, I feel like, that's when they really start to get weird. Because it wasn't weird already. No. Blackie was fine. Yeah. Hours after waking from a nightmare, because obviously nightmares, haunted house. So Kathy awakes. She and George talk about the events they've been dealing with so far. Because it's only been nine... No, less than that. It's like from the 18th to the 25th. Nine, yeah. Seven days. Oh, I thought they moved in the 16th. Sorry. Nope. So it's only been a week at this point. And it's already too much for them to bear. So on Christmas Day, they're having this conversation. Mm-hmm. Merry Christmas, honey. 930 I'm sure in the morning. Our house is haunted. Let's go open some presents. Yeah. Yay. That sounds like us. <laughs> Everything's fine. Who wants to have some drinks? It's Halloween, guys. Please don't <laughs> so, leave. <laughs> so they told the kids to stay out of the sewing room, which you mentioned earlier. But they wouldn't say why. So uh, one of their kids, Chris. Christmas presents. That's what he said. He said, maybe there are more presents in there. But Missy, the youngest, pipes up and says, no, I know why. It's because Jody's in there. Who the heck is Jody? That's what Kathy says. To which Missy says that he's her friend and, quote, he's a pig. Ah, yes, the pig. Her older siblings called her dumb and they just laughed it (laughs) off. (laughs) Her, their dumb little sister. <laughs> She's not to have a pig. We so, can't have real pets. Except for Harry. Oh no, sorry. Chris asked who's Jody, And she said he's a pig. Because that night, Kathy's tucking the kids into bed. And as she's walking into Missy's room, she hears her saying, Isn't the snow beautiful, Jody? Who are you talking to, Missy? An angel? And Missy looked around at her mother. And then her eyes went back to the corner of the room. She goes, No, Mama, just Jody." Kathy turned her head to follow her glance. There's nothing there. And she said, except for like some toys, yeah. you know, the new Christmas present. She's like, is Jody one of your new dolls? No, Jody's a pig. He's my friend. But no, nope. some pig. That's some pig. <laughs> and nobody can see him but me. So she was startled by uh, to see that the boys were eager to sleep that night as well. After being unnerved by the pig, she's like, okay, good night. And goes to see how the boys are. And the boys were not fighting, leaving the playroom or whatever. They're like, yeah, we'll go to bed. Bye. And so she asked them why. And they said it was warmer in their bedrooms. So she checked the playroom to see what the heck they're talking about. And it was freezing in there. Wow. And so she walks into the room. And over to the radiator, she's like, it's got to be broken. I'll just turn, open up the valve, you know, turn it on. And it was piping hot. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Fascinating. That some pig (laughs) is sucked up all the heat. (laughs) So, it's now a Saturday morning and Kathy planned to go to the Amityville supermarket. <laughs> she wrote orange juice on her pad and suddenly became aware of a presence in the room. Did she get a nice warm hug again? So, in her current state, yes. Uh, with, with her mind over the eroding situation of her family. Uh, and the, the need for some OJ. Yeah, so this is a quote straight from the book here. Uh, the memory of the first touch on her hand or yeah on her hand flooded back and she froze suddenly she looked over her shoulder she could see the kitchen was empty but at the same time she sensed the presence was closer almost directly behind her chair 
Her nostrils caught a Swedish scent of perfume, and she recognized it as the odor that had uh, permeated her bedroom four days before. Startled, she could actually feel a body pressing against hers, clasping its arms around her waist. The pressure was light, however, and she realized that, as before, it was a woman's touch, almost reassuring. The unseen presence didn't give her the sense of danger, not at first. But then the sweet smell became heavier. It seemed to swirl in the air, making her dizzy. She started to gag, and then tried to pull away from the grip that tightened as she struggled. Kathy thought she heard a whisper, and she recalled something deep within her warning her not to listen. No, she shouted, shouted, leave me alone, and she struck out in the empty air, and the embrace tightened, hesitated, and then uh, let go. Hmm. I said no to the position. (laughs) So all that remained was the odor of the cheap perfume. She slumped back into the chair. They were mafiosos. It was not cheap perfume, PJ. (laughs) Jeez. So she slumps back into the chair. And she starts to cry. And then a hand touches her shoulder. <laughs> Stop it! And she jumps. She goes, oh god, not again! <laughs> she opens her eyes and Missy's standing there, calming her by patting her on the arm. Don't cry, mama! And then Missy turned her head to look back into the kitchen doorway. Kathy looked too, but there's nothing there. Jody says you shouldn't cry. He says everything will be alright soon. Thank you, Jody. Yeah, right? <laughs> Uh, So a few days later, Kathy is hanging shelves in a closet under the basement stairs when paneling in the wall gives away and from the extra weight that she's hanging up with Mm -hmm. these shelves. And she finds behind it a very small four foot by five foot room painted red from top to bottom. Were there any guns in there? No. Darn it. (laughs) It took them all. So. Because this is the room that had the guns, right? supposedly um one of the friends of the tefeo said like kids just kept toys in there like it was a little mini playroom like we went in there like it's like a little fort inside the house uh, so yeah but like that was the the room though that he had hidden the guns in they just used it as a playroom no no it's no a different area no the gun the the crawl space that he had everything hidden in was up on the second floor how many uh, they're never mind they're mafiosos they probably had people in there <laughs> so, so they could kill people never mind continue mm-hmm. yeah So, uh, she calls George down to take a look at it, and he's like, well, cool, we have a new pantry. (laughs) He has, like, no issue with this. Yeah. But as he's turning off the light, he sees a bearded face looking back at him. Mm. And he learns later that it's... Ronald? Yeah. Oh, Ronald's personal space there. It's a a he shed. (laughs) Uh, so, meanwhile, during all this... Picararo has been fighting his own uh, battle here. Illness after illness have plagued him. And he's just been having an all-around bad time since visiting this house. His hands have now developed sores, and when the sores would heal up, blisters would form, and when they would start to get better, the sores would reopen, and he kept having fever after fever after fever, always peaking around 103 Mm -hmm. degrees, and he just feels like garbage. So that's all happening on his side of the story. See, I find it interesting because he has these flu-like symptoms continually and his hands are bleeding. Almost like, to me, like I think stigmata. Yeah. So, 
It's almost like he's going like through real suffering, like Jesus type suffering. Mm-hmm. So continue. Yeah, it gets to the point where he like starts putting like gloves on yeah. to help with the blisters and putting ointment in the gloves yeah. and things like that. So January 1st, 1975, they are awakened by a howling wind in their room early in the morning. Blankets are torn off them. All the windows are open. Uh, so they slam the windows shut and still they hear wind howling. So they go down the hall and the kids' room's windows are open. And those, they like, can't even get shut. They have to like fight the window to get to get it shut. Um, and that, but Missy's room, her door is still closed. Uh-oh. So they open them up, and it's hot in there. Like, not just warm, it's hot. And she's sleeping soundly. Every, the windows are closed, everything's fine. Jody took care of her. Yeah, yeah, right? Thank you, Jody. I think. No, maybe. Some mm. pig. <laughs> Some pig. But then they notice that there is a rocking chair in the corner of the room, moving. Mm-hmm. And George, seeing this, advances on the chair. And then it stops immediately. I'm going to get that chair. <laughs> I'm going to slurplex this it. Without hesitation, they grabbed Missy and took her downstairs. Oh, yeah. Uh, so Harry the dog, during all this, uh, for the past week or so, he's just become more and more lethargic. Oh, no, Harry. So he's just like, you know, when they go downstairs, he's like, okay. It's <laughs> <laughs> like Rosie. Yeah. <laughs> so by 10 o'clock that night, they're ready to turn in. And as Kathy turns off the lights, she screams. Because in the window, there are two red, unblinking eyes staring right back at her. George turned, and he saw them too. To quote, two, quote, little beady eyes, end quote, that disappeared when he turned the lights back on. He grabbed a flashlight and found a line of hoof-like footprints, similar to a pig, leading to the boathouse. Demon pig. Now, in other um, references, they said the demonic red eyes would peer from around corners, too. It wasn't just that one time. Yeah. But mostly there there was this one window outside Missy's room. Yeah, that's what, yeah. That they saw it. But, I mean, imagine, like, it's around corners, there's just red eyes. Oh, gosh! Oh, it's gone. Okay. Yeah. Like, that would be... Oof. Oh, no. So... Uh, the next day, Kathy finished putting uh, fresh cases on her pillows and, you know, doing laundry, fluffing up the pillows and everything. When she gets embraced from behind again. I do not need a hug today. She freezes instinctively <laughs> and yells out, Danny? Hoping that's one of the kids. <laughs> the grip around her waist tightens. It was stronger than the familiar woman's touch that she experienced in the kitchen. She sensed that a man was holding her, increasing the pressure as she struggled. Let me go, please, she whimpered. The pressure eased suddenly, and the hands released her waist. She felt then, uh, she felt them move up to her shoulders. Slowly, her body was being turned around to face whatever this was. Oh my. In her terror, she became aware of the overwhelming smell of the same perfume, and another hair of, a pair of hands gripped her wrists. She felt like she was now in a struggle for her own body as this tug of war is happening over her. Uh, So escape was impossible, as the book says. She felt that she was going to die. The pressure on her body became overwhelming and she passed out. Okay. When she came to, she was lying half on the bed with her head almost touching the floor. Danny had come into the room to answer to her call and... 
she knew that the presences were gone. She couldn't have been out for more than a moment because of this, because if she called for Danny and he just showed up, you know, she wasn't out for yeah. that long. Uh, but she yells, call daddy at his office right now. Uh, fortunately, he does call daddy. Unfortunately, George doesn't hurry home. Oh, no. He stops at the witch's brew for some beer wow. and to chat with the bartender. Oh, boy. At which point the bartender uh, realizes he's in the DeFeo home and he mentions the Red Room. And he admitted to having a couple nightmares after ever be seeing the Red Room. Uh, he's like, yeah, I've been there a couple times. I saw the Red Rooms and I got nightmares afterwards. What, the bartender said that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, he said he had dreams of people killing dogs and pigs for a ritual. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Not Harry. So no. they, they call Pecoraro and ask him for a blessing. <laughs> and no, thank you. <laughs> as he's on the phone with them, like the static is getting louder and louder. And so they're like, and he's like. Oh, I can't hear you. Sorry. Click. He's like, oh, thank God I don't have to go back. And, and he was very happy that he had a reason to not go back to that house. Because he didn't. <laughs> and uh, so now, night of January 2nd, George hears a literal marching band downstairs. He said it was like 50 people. It's the end of the movie. <laughs> and he said it was like a sizable marching band. And as soon as he ran out to check for the source of it, it immediately stops and chills just go down his spine. Then he hears something behind him. So he runs back to Kathy. She is floating two to three feet above the bed. Mm. He jumps onto the bed and grabs her and she's stiff as a board. And then... Light as a feather? Well, yeah. I mean, she's floating. <laughs> It's like you might argue you're supposed to might play. argue she's lighter than one. <laughs> so he pushes her back onto the board and as soon as like bed you mean. Yeah, bed. As soon as he pushes her back down like the resistance gives up and she flops back onto the bed and she wakes up. And uh she's on the floor and she's like what happened? He goes, "Oh, you just rolled off the bed." What? Are you serious? <laughs> uh-huh. She reminds me of someone goes, oh, I won't tell my wife that there was something black behind her talking. Hmm. I was trying <laughs> to avoid any worry. All right. So the next morning she slept in late. Well, she was busy floating. By yeah. the time 11 a.m. rolls around, George is like, all right, we got to get father back on the line here. So they call Pecorero. <laughs> father Ray's like, I'm done. There's no answer. <laughs> So, it's supposed to be the first day after uh, Christmas break, and also the first day of school for the kids, but school had a heating issue, so no Oops, school today. Yeah, well, welcome to the Northeast. Yeah. Father um, hears about the missed call that he got, and he's like, well, I don't need to go. <laughs> they and probably got somebody else. Sure enough, the blisters and sores disappeared from his hands. Because he refused to go back? Yeah. He learned his lesson, so, that, you know, like, that was, that curse was lifted from him. So, the demon's like, good job? Yeah. Like, oh, you got the warning, you got the hint, okay, like, here's your prize. See, I would say the priest needs to get back in there. A good priest to go, you know what? I gotta go for Jesus. <laughs> George 
again, like it's now it's nighttime. Kathy's still just out of it. She's just kind of been slumped in a chair the whole day. So George tucks in the kids. As he's tucking in Missy, the last words he hears are, Good night, Daddy. Good night, Jody. And he's like, What? <laughs> uh, then the phone rings. It's Pecorero. Yay, Father Ray! And so as they start talking, a static fills George's ear, along with several moans. And so George is like, What? Wait, what are you saying? On the flip side of the conversation for Pecorero, he gets physically slapped across the face. So the moaning was him just because he drops the phone. So the moaning is him. Going, oh. <laughs> then he picks up the phone and he apologizes to George. He's like, nope, sorry, I can't help. Call someone else. What? <laughs> <laughs> On a scale of one to ten being the worst priest. <laughs> At this point, George is like exhausted. Uh, you know, I mean, he's trying to, like, just keep his family safe. He's exhausted. He's freezing. You know, he's obsessing over these things. So he's just mentally exhausted from that. And he's searching for the source of this freaking smell that keeps popping up. Mm -hmm. So as he's going through the house, he discovers, quote, under the area where the front steps to the house had been constructed, he did discover something interesting. When the contractor had laid the foundation for the house at 112 Ocean Avenue, it seemed he had covered over a circular opening with a concrete lid. A well? By squirreling around the dirt piled up against this protuberance. That's a good word. Yes. George accidentally loosened some of the old gravel uh, around the base and heard it fall into water below. (gasps) He flashed his light and saw a beam hit against a wet black shaft. Oh, well, he said aloud. That doesn't show up in the blueprints. It must have been left from the old house that was here before. Huh. Well, look at us being similar to Amityville. Dare I say, well, well, well. well, well. (laughs) They have to have their own well house exorcism. (laughs) Jokes on them, we got it first. So chances are one of his co-workers is dating a medium. Chances are. Not a small, but a medium. He called her Francine because that was her name. Well, who would have thought? Not large or small, but medium. Yeah, I got you. (laughs) She then said that uh, uh, what she said after he called her was something that shocked him. She said, quote, I think... That your spirits may be coming from a well. <laughs> a well, well, well. Yeah. You can cap it off, you know, but I bet if you do find a well under your house, there's a direct passage to it. And somehow, even if it's a tiny crack, that's all it takes. With that, it can climb out when it wants to. Well, that's nice. <laughs> I'm just going to dump some concrete in there. Continue. Yeah, right. <laughs> Later, Father Pecoraro and George are on the phone again. And he warns them to stay away from mediums and to get out of that house. Pecorero is reminded not to do this by feeling a tightness in his throat and his stomach starts to churn and he feels a fever coming on. Oh boy. (laughs) Later, they had Kathy's brother Jimmy and his wife over. They stayed in Missy's room while she slept on a couch for the night. Here's another direct quote from the book. Who got to... Have Jody? Did Jody snuggle up with the feet of the family, or 
Well, who, who gets to keep Jody? Well. Oh, okay. At 3.15 in the morning. Of course. George knew this because he'd been lying awake for quite a while checking his wrist. Yep, just ready for it, checking his watch, as the book says. It was then that Carrie woke up screaming, Oh, God, not her too, he muttered to himself. (laughs) George leaped out of bed and ran to Missy's room and snapped on the light. The young couple were huddled together in the bed, Jimmy cradling his sobbing wife. What's the matter? George asked. What's happened? Carrie pointed to the foot of Missy's bed. Something was sitting there. It touched my foot. George approached the spot that Carrie had indicated and felt the bed with his hand. It was warm enough as though someone had been sitting there. Uh, I woke up, Carrie continued, and I could see a little boy. He looked so sick and he was trying to tell me to help him. She began to cry hysterically. Jimmy shook his wife gently. Come on, Carrie, he said soothingly. You were probably having a dream. And No, Jimmy, Carrie protested. It wasn't a dream. I saw him. He spoke to me. What did he uh what did he say, Carrie? George asked. Carrie's shoulders were still shaking, but gradually she looked up from her husband's cradling, cradling arms. George heard a noise behind him and touched him on his shoulder. He jumped and looked around. It was Kathy. Her eyes were misty, as though she too had been crying. Kathy cr- Carrie cried. What did the little boy say? And Kathy prompted her. He asked me where Missy and Jody were. Hmm. <laughs> You're in the wrong bed. Excuse me. Here in my spot. <laughs> so the next day they call father again. <laughs> After a conversation, he says, I feel this is bigger than us. And he hears Kathy scream through the receiver. And George says, I'll be right back. <laughs> Please hold. Your call is very important to us. George runs up the walls to find a green. He runs up the walls. George runs up the stairs. <laughs> To find that on the walls and dripping from the ceiling is a green slime. Yep. And immediately they start yelling at the kids. (laughs) Of course. There's like, why did you throw jello on the freaking ceiling and walls? Why would you do this? And they're like, we didn't. And so George swipes them off the wall and licks it. No, gross, no. First he sniffs it. Okay. It is odorless and tasteless. And that's when he realized. This isn't not jello. jello. This is not jello. <laughs> Ectoplasm. Yeah. January 10th, the next day. It's raining outside. Pouring, actually. It's raining, it's pouring. Kathy tells Danny to go upstairs and shut her window. It was only open a crack anyways, just to get some fresh air in. But it's January and it's raining. Why would you have a window open? I can continue. I don't know. Oh, because there's the phantom smells, probably. Yeah, yeah. That's get a big that nasty smell out of there. Uh, Nasty smell, bye-bye. So, George ran out to bring Harry inside, because Harry was, he stays outside in his doghouse a lot of time. And as he's walking in, a scream sounds from upstairs. It's Danny with his fingers stuck in the middle, in the window. Uh, So, from the first knuckle down to the tip. So, you know, like a half inch there. When they finally get the window to pop open, which it pops open, like, on its own. Because they struggle to get it open. They said that his fingers were completely flat. Ugh. Yeah. The, from the nail up to that first knuckle. Like, flat. At this, George loses it. He starts running around room to room, yelling at his, quote, unseen tormentors, uh, with Kathy trailing him. 
begging him to ask for a doctor. <laughs> and he's like, you know, just be- picking for a fight, asking where they are and to show themselves. And she's just following like, could you just please just call doctor? Like, please can we get him out of here? And finally, like, you know, he snaps out and he's like, oh, yeah, right. Let, let's do, let's go. And so they call the family doctor. No answer. So they're like, all right, get your clothes on. We're run going to yeah, run the hospital. So Brunswick Hospital Center is where they go. And uh, it's less than a mile from the house, but with the weather... Yeah. Severe wind and rainfall takes them 15 minutes to get one mile down the road. Fortunately, nothing is broken. They bandaged up his hands and, well, hand, it's his right hand. And uh, he's okay. They send him on his way. January 11th. This is one of the worst days the next day. Because most of their windows were broken the night before from the wind and the rain. The everything's a mess the wind messed everything up there's water all over the place so they are just quietly no one's talking and they're just slowly cleaning up this house yeah all day even the dog (laughs) is just pacing back and forth every so often he'd bare his teeth and howl at the boathouse that night they all slept in the master bedroom together the corner room that has windows that aren't broken. Yep. So the kids were in the bed. Kathy and George were in chairs. Uh, George was rudely awakened by Kathy. Uh, and she, you know, he's like, what the heck? Like, I was sleeping. And uh, she said he was yelling, I'm coming apart. I'm coming apart. And he asked her if he heard her. He's like, oh, my God, are you okay? And she said, no, you didn't touch me or anything. You, you were just yelling. So the next morning... January 12th. Hey, that's a good day. Uh, he woke up angry because now that the night had worn off, he realized that he he never he wasn't yelling, I'm coming apart. He was yelling, I'm coming unglued. And he said he said he knew this because he had a dream of a hooded figure with his with his face looking at him. Ew. And he argued with Kathy about it, saying that um uh, saying that he didn't say I'm coming apart and she's like no you definitely said I'm coming apart he's like no I said I'm coming unglued so it's the dumbest argument who in the world who cares you had a dream and it's not a good one yeah when Missy chimes in saying that George needed to go to her room because Jody wanted to talk to him oh boy George asks who the heck is Jody and cause, it's some pig yeah because at this point he hasn't asked you know <laughs> Kathy knows who Jody is the other kids know George doesn't. And and Missy replies, he's the bestest pig you ever saw. <laughs> George doesn't like the mention of a pig. So after the red-eyed incident. Yes. Excellent. Humble. <laughs> anyway, as many Charles Web references I can get in, I'm going so to So he races into the room. First, he doesn't see anything at all. And Missy says like, you know, oh, he'll show up. And then she's like, oh, there he is. He's here. And he looks down at Missy and she's pointing to one of her windows. He follows the finger and he startles. Staring at him through one of the panes are two fiery red eyes. No face, just the mean little eyes of a pig. That's Jody, Missy cried. He wants to come in. Something rushed past George on his left. It was Kathy screaming in an unearthly voice. 
And Don't let it in! In the same move it took her to reach the window, she picked up one of Missy's play chairs and swung it at the eyes. Not the other... We only have so much glass available in this house, <laughs> Kathy. But apparently that must have been a pretty graceful motion. Like, she doesn't stop. She just, like, grabs it <laughs> as she's running and just brings it down on this window. It's not how this works. It's not how any of this works. <laughs> so... Her blow shatters the window. What? Shards of glass flew back on top of her. Because the wind. There was an animal cry of pain, a loud squealing, and the eyes were gone. George rushes to what was left of the window, and he looks down. He still hears the squealing, but doesn't see anything. But the squealing sounds like it's heading for the boathouse. Okay, we're good. Go on, get. Yep. Shoot. All right. We're going to skip ahead a little bit here to January 25th. The last night. So. I, I liked the January 12th day. <laughs> I just want to say it's a good day. Mm -hmm. Anyway. It's a wild day, right? That's one heck of a day right there. I don't think anyone should break windows on my birthday. Just don't do Jody's that. public appearance to the world. <laughs> so January 25th, the last night, George had a strange dream that he was floating around the bedroom. And then he plops down onto the mattress. And then he sees Kathy lift up, float around the room. There's levitation again, man. Yep. And drop back down next to him. And then he raises into the air again. And at this point, Kathy wakes up and starts calling for him to wake up. And then he startles, or when, uh, when he settles back down next to her, uh, she starts shaking him awake and says, we need to leave right now, That and that he was floating. And he's like, that wasn't a dream? You sure? <laughs> And so they all get up and grab the kids and make their way down the stairs and stop. There's a green-black slime snaking its way up the stairs towards them. That's when he knew for sure it wasn't a dream. <laughs> and so they left and never returned. So, in my research, they also said that the furniture would move randomly throughout the house and the furniture was actually the DeFeo's furniture that was left over. Mm. So that's something that you hadn't mentioned, but like that, that was interesting. Cause like, yeah. you know, those innocuous little things that they mentioned there were sounds at first, like the little, the knockings and whatnot. Of course there's the smells, there's a door opening and closing, like you mentioned too. But again, the furniture moving Yeah, and it's like, okay, well it's not even your furniture. So, Hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, um, also strange welts, which up on Kathy's body. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Yeah. And so I wonder if that's like from the the extreme hugs that she got. Yeah. But and they felt like burns, like yeah. if you touched it it hurt. It hurt, yeah. And then another re another part of research I found said that she physically transformed into an old lady. Yep. Mm -hmm. With face, hair and wrinkles, all of it. Yeah. So like Yeah, she looked into a mirror and saw an old lady looking back at her. Yeah. That's yeah. messed up. But yeah, so leave her 28 days. Mm -hmm. So, do you have anything else in the house? Yes. Because I got some stuff, too. Okay. But go ahead. So, February 18th, Marvin Scott from New York's Channel 5 asked to investigate further. He gets permission from the Lutz family, gathers several investigators, Ed and Lorraine Warren were two of them, along with other parapsychologists and clairvoyants, and they all get together for a seance. Immediately, Mary uh, Sorella began to feel ill and had to leave the room. 
And she said that she was feeling quite threatened and that there was a darkness beneath everything that she couldn't see. So then there was Mrs. Riley, another clairvoyant, who just started gasping for air during it. Ed started to say, we need to stop this. Yeah. But everyone else like, no, we got this. And even uh, Mrs. Riley, from what I gathered, like, she was like, yeah, we can keep going. Like, I'll just not breathe for a while. (laughs) Air is overrated. Uh, then Mike Linder, an observer from WNEW-FM, said he experienced sudden numbness and cold sensations while they were there. Hmm. So as some of the people slept upstairs during, like, you know, throughout the whole night, yeah, you know, yeah. some people were like, well, we're just going to sleep upstairs and see if anything happens to us while we sleep in the house. While this was happening, there was a photographer taking infrared pictures. Now, have you seen this? No. Okay. So he caught an image, and I'm going to show it to you before I ex- describe it, because I want to see if, if what, you, see what you think about it here. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you mentioned, like, images. Well, while you're putting the picture, my research said that the Warrens investigated the house five months after the Lutzes had left. So I'm not sure if it took that long for the W-whatever-K people, the news reporters, to get them all together. But it, they said they did it five months after, and Ed was physically pushed to the ground, and Lorraine felt a deep sense of something demonic in the home, and she was overcome with visions of the DeFeo family's bodies just lying on the floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll get to that in a second here. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so this is a zoomed-in version. So you're going to notice it. Let me see if I can find Good. the actual one. Well, because they, the Warren said they also got a picture of a demon child sitting in the home's basement, but I couldn't find a picture like from that. There was supposed to be a link in the the research, and I couldn't. It it's not the basement. It was the land. It was the second floor, right there. So that thing. Oh yeah. Oh no 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 no. <sighs> I don't like that. Oh, I'm gonna have nightmares. There is <sighs> there is a zoomed in picture further. The eyes are very bright, too. I don't like that. Here's a zoomed-in picture. I don't want to zoom. I'm good. I don't want to see it again. I'm good. Please stop. John DeFeo. I don't see the resemblance. I do, but... That boy is wearing glasses. I don't want to look at it anymore. Please stop. It's a picture of a boy peeking out from a bedroom door at the camera, but this boy is wearing glasses, which no one else is wearing glasses and there there were no children because again this is a month after everyone moved out so it was only adult professionals in this building i'm good so what was this picture i don't want to see it anymore please but he's not a pig so it's very confusing yeah so some people think it's the DeFeo boy. I don't think it looks anything like the DeFeo I boy. I see. I see it a little. You bit. see it. Mm-hmm. So he's been through some things. PJ. He's been living with the pig. <laughs> okay. So, so what else happens? By March, the Lutzes were gone. They moved to California. All of their belongings still in the house. Yeah. The children, especially Danny DeFeo or Danny Lutz, sorry, uh, still hold to this day. That many of the events that happened in the book are true. Wow, that's good. Okay, well, not, not good for them, but, like, that that's real. So, according to the children, everything you just heard is yeah. real. Um, there were some embellishments, according to George, but nothing absurdly out there. So, 
if that's true, like, holy cow, yeah. you know, that's insane. Shortly later, Ronnie DeFeo's lawyer, after all the events of this, they moved to California. Ronnie DeFeo's lawyer, um, Bill Weber, reaches out to them. And because he was going to write a book about Ronnie DeFeo and the DeFeo murders. And then he hears about all this going on. (laughs) Better story. And he reaches out to them. And over several bottles of wine, they outline what a possible book could look like. I like how they have to drink wine to get through it. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, when the the Lutzes learned that he was going to give some of the money to Ronnie DeFeo, though, they backed out of the deal. Yeah. They're like, nope, sorry. And that's when they met Jay Anson, who ended up writing the book. Yeah, yeah. And they took everything that they discussed with Bill Weber, and they just gave it to Jay. Nice. (laughs) At which point uh, we get into the deduction, debunking of the story. So from here, Ronnie had sold his rights to a book for eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars, no royalties. Just give me eight hundred fifty thousand. Mm-hmm. You'll, I'll never have to hear from you again. You'll never have to hear from me again. They signed the paperwork. Boom. He never got a dime of that. Uh, not, not one cent. Good. Which, yeah. Ex- it anyway. Yes. It, right. You murdered people. <laughs> I have no problem with that. <laughs> Judge Weinstein, um, who adjudicated over the DeFeo murders, yeah. um. He said that, like, a lawyer writing a book about one of his clients is not exactly the uh, best thing to do anyways, and you probably shouldn't be doing that. But when the Lutzes were suing for rights to the book, because Bill Weber was saying, like, we we made this book, and they just gave all my material to Jay Anson, and he wrote it, you mm-hmm. know? So Bill Weber comes out and says, like, it's not real. Over three bottles of wine, we came up with all this stuff. The stuff, the green slime on the walls, was an anecdote from when one of them was walking down the stairs with tomato soup and spilled it on the walls. And they're like, oh, we could just change that to green slime and say it's a ghostly thing. And he's like, none of it was real. Like, it was all, uh, like, the wooden door, that wasn't real. There are insurance claims for a metal screen door that was blown off one of his hinges and flapping around, and there's a picture of that, but there's no evidence of a wooden door that got blown off its hinges. Uh, so he's like, he's like, you know, they, they just took my stuff that I created and gave it to someone else. And so the judge starts asking around about the priest, and... Now, again, this is something I couldn't find online, mm-hmm. so take it with a grain of salt. But the priest denies everything. Huh. He says, "Not this is not real. So, I, I looked online. I could not find anything of the priest saying this. Um, so but, that it wasn't real? Yeah. Okay. But Ronnie said that... The uh, Judge Weinstein mentioned this in like court, I think it was, or something like that. That you know, the judge explicitly said the priest denies all of it. Well, if it's coming from Ronnie, I don't believe it. I know, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's that. It comes from. He's Ronnie. just a little angry. He can get money for this. Now that leads to the part of was the priest lying for the family, or was he uninformed? Because his story does not add up. The priest drives a car called the chevy vegas and 
as we said, his hood pops up and slams into the window, or into the windshield. Chevy Vegas hoods pop the other way. Yeah, they pop, yeah. They pop forwards. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's physically impossible for that hood to come back that way because the, there's only one hinge. It's not two, and it's in the front of the car, yeah. not near the back, near the windshield. So there's no possible way that that event ever happened at all because it's not possible with a Chevy Vegas. Um, so there's that. Uh, Maybe he was borrowing someone else's car. Continue. <laughs> This is my favorite, though. So, Ronnie claims that Weber made up the stories of the red-eyed pig. That is completely made up by the lawyer. Now, a neighbor from the documentary Shattered Hopes said, No, it's it's not a made-up story per se. The neighbors have this Siamese cat. And it has red eyes. And the cat's favorite thing to do would go over to 112 Ocean Avenue and stare into their windows. And so these little beady red eyes would be staring at you through these windows all the time. And to the point where um, Ronald DeFeo called it Fat Pig because it was this huge A cat. <laughs> like this chubby red-eyed little thing. And so he'd just yell, get out of here, you fat pig! And... And, like, you know, shoo the cat away all the time. So they're like, it was probably just the cat. Every time they looked out the window and saw these red eyes looking back in at them. A Siamese cat has fur. A Siamese cat has fur and it has pointy ears. (laughs) No. All right. Continue. (laughs) I love it, though. I love the idea of, like, someone's cat. Darn fat pig, (laughs) don't get out of here. (laughs) Now, in terms of the window... A parapsychologist on Shattered Hope said he went into the house to investigate because someone who had, you know, they were friends of the DeFeo family and they're like, oh, yeah, the window, like there's something wrong with the counterweights in it. You push on this one floorboard and it pops open. And he's like, are you sure about that? And they're like, yeah. So he's like, "Okay, I'm going to go in there and find out. So he like gets into the house and uh, he goes into the bedroom And sure enough, he feels like one of the floorboards feels loose, so he stomps on it, and poof, the window pops open. He's like, well, that mystery is solved now, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Like, there there is just something weird with that floorboard must have ran under the windowsill and was able to jostle the counterweights in the window in such a way that would just pop up. Uh, So when they're trying to get um, Danny's hand out, and the window just opens on its own, someone ran into the room, hit that board, and poop, up the window went. Speaking of Danny's hands, when questioned on TV about the uh, trip to the hospital, they're like, so if we go to New Brunswick and subpoena um, some records from them, we would see that Danny was there for his hand, and George is like, well, uh, no, we uh, we went to the family doctor. And they're like, okay, so if we went to the family doctor and called him up, he's like, oh, well, I think we actually just bandaged his hands at home. Um. And yeah, so like the story just wasn't exactly meshing there either. Yeah, that happened. <laughs> Lorraine, during uh, their seance, would... Uh, at one point, she sat on the master bed of um, 
the DeFeo's, uh, the DeFeo's bedroom. And she sat there and said she could feel all the pain and, uh, and like she relived the entire night of the DeFeo murders. And she's like, I, she's like, I know it sounds a bit far-fetched, but it's, the mattress is different, but the frame is still the same. So, you know, like I have that connection to it. The frame is not the same. <laughs> it was a completely different bed, even in a different place in the room, too. And so everyone's like, are you sure about that, Lorraine? You sure? <laughs> my last my last thing in terms of debunking it are... Oh, I have a couple, actually. Sorry. So, one, the 300-pound door. You know, no insurance, no insurance record, yeah. records of that. There are actually zero photographs of repair bills, insurance claims, etc. of any of the damage they sustained there. The mm-hmm. windows breaking, all that. There's actually the first article that ever states that their house was haunted was a newspaper article. And it said they only lived there for 10 days, not 28 days. Huh. Yeah. So that whole 28-day thing. And neighbors said, like, Christmas time, they... You know, they they looked at their neighbor's house across the way, and curtains weren't even hung up yet, so they could see stacks of boxes inside the house, but no one was in there. And so, like, neighbors can corroborate that they weren't there for Christmas. Hmm. Yeah. If you trust the nosy neighbors, that's what they say. I would like to ask their Siamese cat. (laughs) Marvin Scott, the guy who was in charge of getting everyone together for the seance... Um, in the epilogue, it says that Marvin met with the Lutzes at this little pizza joint in Amityville and that they gave him the keys to the house and they said they, they're not going into the house, but they'll be there if they need anything. Marvin goes, I have never eaten a slice of pizza in Amityville and I've never met the Lutzes. <laughs> so I don't know what this epilogue is talking about at all. Uh, lastly, I have that George Lutz... While he maintains that the book is mostly true, he said it embellishes in some parts. If you're going to embellish some parts, where's the line that stops you from embellishing all embellishing of more? Yeah. Because when we told our stories, we did not for no. one fact. Because again, like you can easily start to sensationalize, yeah. you know? And so at what point is it too much? When you add in a red-eyed pig. <laughs> I hold this probably. <laughs> I don't know. See, I want to believe it's real just because it's such a cool story. It's a great story. Like, I was telling Shanna earlier today as we we're driving around. I was like, man, I, I was reading this book, like finishing it up at 1 a.m. La- this morning, last night. 1 a.m. And I'm like, man, this is so, so fake. Like, it ends with the green slime coming up the stairs, and then they leave. It's like, well, how'd they get out of the house? <laughs> they jumped over it, <laughs> obviously. Um, so, But the whole time, like, this is so dumb. Did I just hear something? <laughs> what was what was that? Did I just see something over there? <laughs> I'm all alone yeah. in, in the actual well house. <laughs> so, and, and even a couple times as I was reading this right now, like, I just, like, feel a chill on, you know, on my neck. And I was like, Ugh. Well, the kids, you know? like, if they're sticking to the story, you know, it's it's, yeah. it's, inter- it's interesting. Yeah. Say at least. And we'll never know. Uh, do I want to go visit it? No. I'm good. I do. I don't, because we have our own well house. We have our own well. I'm, I'm fine. Well, that's something else. Four families have lived there since. And no one has found Not- a well. Well, and I don't know about the well, but there are zero, there are zero experiences. Pul- yeah, I know. Yeah. 
Did they buy it for $80,000 is the question. No, I think the last one was 600000 Yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> if you sensationalize it enough, you yeah. can send it for something. But if you, if you look it up on Google, there's... um. There's an article like, you know, we were allowed in the Amityville house or something like that. And you get to see what it looks like today. And wow, it is a nice house. A it is a pool. gorgeous house. Honestly, a, a ghost can give me a hug. No, I'm kidding. Don't give me a hug, ghost. <laughs> but I, I think Lorraine's uh, comment on it, I think it's uh, it's interesting for me to use my favorite adjective, interesting. And I just, I want to believe it's real. I know we debunked, but I want to believe it's real because it's just, it, it's eerily similar to our house. I didn't realize there was a well until that just now, mm-hmm. but like, you know, now that we've lived through it, I'm a little more open to people's stories and you know, your parents said they never had anything really happen in here. Yeah. You guys did as kids, but they had nothing happen yeah. for us. Us and our kids had things happen. Mm-hmm. So maybe they were just a little more attuned to it. And it was only a year after the murders. Yeah. Or it Some parapsychologists them? say that, like, it just comes and goes. Like, it can happen for, you know, a year and then just never happen again. Yeah. Well, you know, like, so there is that theory, too. Like, maybe in another couple decades, it'll start up again for some unfortunate family. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I, I it probably is fake. I mean, it's a demon pig. That's just <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> But I'm going to say it's real just because I, I want it to be real because <laughs> it's a cool story. I know. So, no, I I think it's you take it with a grain of salt and you believe what you want to believe. And yeah. if we ever find Father Ray and talk to Father Ray, we'll find out, mm-hmm. you know. But Lorraine Warren, uh, when asked about Amityville. Oh, well, he passed away, so you will never know from him. Well, darn it. Yeah. Well, yet. <laughs> if I, I'm a little bit of a medium myself, maybe I could know. <laughs> Um, So anyway, Lorraine Warren, to finish this up, she states, Amityville was horrible, honey. It was absolutely horrible. It followed us right straight across the country. I don't even like to talk about it. I will never go in the Amityville house ever again. You don't know how long my career is. That's the only one. Evil. It's the personification of evil. And I think that's telling. Yeah. I know. So I want to believe it's real. Mm Mm-hmm. I can't. And if it's not, it's not. It's, it's such good. a good story, either way. Exactly. It's such a great story. It makes for a good movie. Love yeah, to watch that's a for good sure. movie. I yep. have not seen it, but yeah. I want to. Well, anyway, folks out there, you should message us and tell us what you think about Amityville. We'd love to hear your, um, your thoughts on the matter, uh, especially Jackie, Tim, Penny, if you're listening. I know you are. Um, let us know what you think about Amityville. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, definitely. It's a hot topic. I've decided. For sure. I've decided it's real. I'm gonna go. I usually on the debunker. It's real. <laughs> I've decided. I'm... See, I'm the other way. Like <laughs> I love this story, but I, I can't. I know it's fake, I but I'm gonna can't. pretend that it's real because there's can't. a demon pig. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, thank you for um, redeeming yourself from the Jersey Devil. And <laughs> <Pop-pop> <laughs> PJ. And uh, have a good night. Yep. Bye, everyone.